Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 160. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love Talking Tudors and you never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. June's prize is a book bundle containing the three novels in Tony Rich's Elizabethan series. A huge thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of June, I'll be chatting to Brooke Little about the musical lives of the Tudor Queen's consort. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now let's get on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Margaret Tudor's correspondence is Dr. Helen Newsom. Dr. Newsom is an historical linguist who completed a PhD on the correspondence and diplomatic practices of Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scots, at the University of Sheffield in 2019. She's currently working on a scholarly edition of Margaret's correspondence to be published in the Royal Historical Society's Camden First Series and is a postdoctoral research associate in foreign linguistics at Aston University. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome to Talking Tudors. Helen, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. A bit chilly here in um, Down Under at the moment, but I'm, I'm doing okay. Thank you. So would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background? Oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, so I'm originally a historical linguist. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Sheffield on Margaret Tudor's correspondence. Um, but since then, I've been continuing my historical linguistic research. I'm currently producing an edition of her letters. Um, but I've also been uh, working as a forensic linguist, kind of working on contemporary material uh, and criminal interactions. Um, and now I'm just about to like finish that up and move on to a new big project looking at Queen's correspondence as a, as a large genre of writing um, in, a, in another postdoc position. So back to the historical linguist hat on. So I guess I've got um, quite an unusual background for someone working on the Tudors as well. There's not many people who work on Tudor linguistics, uh, especially royal linguistics. So there's a small group of us. So well, I'm kind of unusual, I guess, in terms of my disciplinary, disciplinary approach to this material. So linguist, I think we'd say, and casually Fantastic. arrive to the Tudors. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm so um, I'm so looking forward to your new book. I'm like, when is it coming out? Is it soon? How long do I have to wait? No pressure. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what's taken me so long is all the pressure. Of course. No, I, I totally understand. So when did you actually become interested in Margaret Tudor's life and story? Yeah, so I was um, doing my master's um, at the University of Sheffield in English language and linguistics, but I've always been really interested in, in historical texts and literature. And I took a class on paleography, so the look at, looking at historical handwriting. And my old PhD supervisor, who was then just one of the lecturers in the course, um, brought this weird document, and it was one of Margaret Tudor's letters. And I remember being like, what is this? Like, it's such a such a really interesting text and she some of the terminology she used was Scots terminology and we had such a puzzle trying to work out what she was saying in this letter one of the words was essentially is congafethment but with early modern spelling so it was such a strange text and I and, and then from there, I was really interested in doing more manuscript work. And he suggested doing a, an MA thesis on her and her, her sister, Mary Tudor Brandon. So that's kind of how it started. It just kind of realised that she was such an untapped and interesting character. And her correspondence, there'd never been a comprehensive analysis and kind of exploration of her letters. So that's how I was finally introduced to her. And she's such a fascinating character. And Part of such an incredibly iconic dynasty. I mean, the sister of Henry VIII, grandmother of Mary Queen of Scots, but she's just so kind of little known, really, yeah. in, in reflection. So that's kind of what really drew her to me and I kind of uncovering this fantastic and really fascinating and headstrong woman through her correspondence. So, yeah, it was just by chance, really, a paleography lesson. And here we are eight years later, nine years. <laughs> Oh, I love those stories. I love hearing how people, you know, how their interests got ignited. And now, of course, I have to ask you, what is that fabulous word? What does it mean? Hong of Uh Yes, it basically sort of means like dowry lands, conjoint lands. Yeah. It took me a while to work it out. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. Exactly. So before we kind of dive into her, her letters, can you tell us a little bit about her background, maybe a little bit about her family and how she came to become the Queen of Scotland? So she was the eldest uh, daughter of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. And, and in that role, I mean, it's in, as a, a royal woman and a princess of the, in the medieval and early modern periods, you actually had such an important job in the, in the fact that you would often marry a foreign prince or king. And through that union, you would 
can often forge peace treaties and you were so important to the union in these dynasties. So I think that's something that we don't necessarily always account for, that the sheer pressure and importance that was placed on these royal women and their marriages. So as the eldest daughter of Henry VII, she was quite ambitious diplomatically and, and worked really hard to establish a very strong kingdom. Margaret had like a really important job to play and she would have known that from being such a young age. And it was, I think it was in the late 1490s, 1497 or something like that, that there started to be negotiations between Henry VII and, and James IV of Scotland about there being a royal marriage between Margaret and James IV. Um, and historically, for hundreds of years, there's been such um, kind of strife and warfare between England and Scotland. I mean, <laughs> horrendous. There'd be so many, so many killings and so many invasions. And the, uh, the idea and the design of this marriage was to try and secure peace between England and Scotland. So Margaret went to marry James IV in August 1503 and so she was just 13 years old really young I mean not young in the medieval early modern queen standards but can you imagine a 13 or 14 year old having such pressure on their shoulders um so she went up to Scotland and she returned to England once during her life in between 1515 and 1517 but for the rest of the time she remained in Scotland and it was through her um children that we get James VI who becomes James I of England so she's kind of quite a as I said, a relatively little known character of the Tudor dynasty, but actually plays such an incredibly important role in the securing of the dynasty and its continuation. Yeah, absolutely. I think we hear quite a lot about, obviously, Catherine of Aragon's marriage to Arthur and then to Henry, but it, you're yeah. right. It's it's sort of like Margaret is sidelined and I'm so glad you're focusing on her. This is fantastic. So how much of Margaret's correspondence actually survives and who was she writing to? Oh, but she is a huge archive for the, the woman of this position. Um, so thus far, I found about 230 letters. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I, I'm Margaret. Timed well there. Wow, <laughs> no, yeah, oh my god. Because usually, you know, in these cases, we find five letters. You know, I study the life of Anne Boleyn. I think we're at around six or seven letters. Yeah. So that is incredible. Prolific is, is, I think, the way to describe that. What's really interesting is in the archives, there's about 110 holograph letters. So those are letters written by Margaret herself. And that's unprecedented for any British or English or Scottish medieval or early modern princess or queen so that she is the biggest so even like with Elizabeth I so we have about 3,000 letters for Elizabeth I in total that we found and there's 97 of them are holograph written by her so Elizabeth I was yeah. such a massive epistory archive Margaret is still quite unusual so um, and who does she write to so a lot of the surviving correspondence is directed to English recipients because the history of the Scottish archives is very complicated and a lot of the royal archives in Scotland have been damaged or destroyed and I haven't yet found really more than a couple of copies of letters of Margaret's in Scotland. Uh, so the rest are in, um, so like the Bodleian, the National Archives and the British Library and they're directed to, as you'd expect, Henry VIII and also to his main kind of diplomatic agents. So Thomas Wolsey, Thomas Cromwell, Thomas Howard and also a guy called Thomas Dacre who was a really important border warden of England and Scotland in the early 16th century. So it's, it's very kind of 
male focused mm-hmm. correspondence and it's all kind of uh, directed to people who played quite an important role in um, the execution of Henry VIII's royal agency and people are important in Anglo-Scots negotiations more widely so it's, it's really interesting there's not a lot of personal sort of you know familial chatty correspondence we don't have anything to her her sister or to her grandmother there's one letter to Henry VII and that she sends just as she arrives in Scotland to say I'm here and I miss you but, but that's it so it's quite an interesting archive and it's interesting to think about how large it would have been um, if all of the texts had like survived and it's interesting because you only get kind of one sort of yeah. you get the dry snapshot of Margaret you know the very practical politically and di- diplomatically involved kind of side of her but you don't really get an insight into kind of her personal life or her marriages or relationships with her family and her children unfortunately that that doesn't survive or I've not found it yet so but yeah she's such an incredibly prolific writer yeah that's amazing well keep looking Helen there could be more you never know. I, can't, I, I always hope. I'm like, one day I'm going to go to Scotland and there'll be a casket that's found Exactly. In my I feel like I came home. across once a letter to Anne or the Anne Boleyn sorry I always just say Anne like if everyone's going to know what I'm talking about but Anne Boleyn is there a letter yeah there is one yeah there's uh, one or two to uh, Catherine of Aragon it was written like as a partner piece to a letter to Henry VIII I think it was talking about some kind of peace negotiation interestingly it's not signed which is quite unusual so I'm not really sure what happened there but yeah. it, it was um, like sealed and, and dispatched. So, but yeah, there is one to Anne All right. And just for the for the benefit of everyone listening, can you just clarify the difference between, because I know this gets a little confusing, between the autograph, yeah. the holograph and the scribal correspondence? Holograph and autograph are used interchangeably by historians, linguists. I use holograph, my preferred terminology, but these two terms basically mean letters that were written in the hand of the sender. And then scribal uh, letters mean that they were written by a third party. So that could be a professional scribe, or it could be your mom or your sister, whoever you kind of had available. But what's really interesting about those two different terms is that they suggest that a holograph text is probably was composed, designed by the person who wrote it in their own hand, whereas scribal text it might be dictated um but what's really interesting is the fact that distinction isn't clear and holograph texts are often collaborative compositions as are scribal texts so you know someone a sender margaret might have like leaned over the shoulder of one of her scribes writing or given them a draft that they should copy but the same can happen for a holograph text so it's sort of really interesting thinking about we have these distinctions of terminology but actually it doesn't equal a a linear distinction in terms of authorship and, and the composition of these texts so that's just something to know because people think oh yeah. wow holograph that means yeah. that, you know Margaret was writing it all herself and it really does not mean that yeah I always find those distinctions really interesting because I, I suppose today we have this idea if you write someone a letter if you're still doing that if anyone's still yeah. doing that I like to do it that they're going to read it on their own as well and it's not going to be mm-hmm. a sort of public thing whereas of course in the 16th century it was quite common for it to be a public affair. Hugely, yes, absolutely. They would have been circulated around different reading groups. Sometimes they were read aloud by a messenger or an ambassador. If you write to Henry VIII, it's safe to say a letter did not go straight to Henry VIII and he read yeah. it. It would have gone to one of his secretariat or it would have gone to Thomas Wolsey, who then would have vetted it and sent the important things to Henry. So, And that's, that's what I find really interesting is Margaret is writing very often to her brother Henry VIII they're sharing the same DNA this is one of her closest relatives and he would not have immediately opened her correspondence you know it was far more 
public in that sense yeah. and, and because it was dealing with very important matters you know these her um, correspondence was received by his agents and was processed alongside all of the other kind of more all of the other generic correspondence coming from Europe so you know even though they have this in theory close blood link that doesn't mean yeah. that they shared a close relationship or it was privileged through correspondence yeah that's so interesting I think it's something so important to keep in mind where we're trying to analyze letters and, and work yeah. out what you know is the tone of the letter what are they trying to say to keep in mind that they're probably expecting a group of people to be listening to this yeah absolutely so what do Margaret's surviving letters tell us about her relationship with some of these people? So, as I said, much of Margaret's um, correspondence is dedicated to Henry VIII, his advisors, Thomas Wolsey, Thomas Cromwell, and some of his chief political agents. So Thomas Dacre, who's a border warden, Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey later, Duke of Norfolk, who um, is often sent to the northern borders of England to lead the armies who are sent to kind of retaliate Scotland's attempts to invade England, which happens at multiple points during Margaret's life. And what's really interesting is that Margaret's writing to them is very practical and she's engaged in kind of the nuts and bolts of negotiations of politics and diplomacy between England and Scotland. So at one point she says, she writes to Thomas Dacre saying, please can you write to Henry VIII, just try and organise and persuade him to renew the Anglo-Scots Peace Treaty because it's really important to me. And she also writes to Thomas Howard at one point acting as a bit of a spy um, when she's kind of showing very dual. She's often kind of occupies a role of dual allegiance, but at times Margaret does show a preference to England or to Scotland. And at this point she wants to leave Scotland and come to England. So she starts to act as a spy and reports quite important military information to the Earl of Surrey, who's stationed near Berwick. So it shows that Margaret has a very practical relationship with these individuals. And she's like being involved in very, what we might regard as kind of traditional masculine domains, kind of dealing with issues of state and military matters and political and diplomatic negotiations. So she's really in and amongst these important male agents trying to negotiate what's going on um, between the two realms. And it shows that with some of Henry VIII's noblemen, so Thomas Dacre and Thomas Howard in particular, she has a really close relationship with these individuals because they're almost like a lifeline between her and England. I guess what we don't really think about with royal women is we think about, you know, the relationship they have with their husband and, and their family, but we don't really think about the relationship they can have with kind of the agents of important kids kings and princes and I think that's what's so interesting about Margaret's correspondence the fact that she's just got such a she's writing to um, Henry VIII's noblemen on a daily basis trying to negotiate and seek their help and negotiate very like minute details of the politics and diplomacy between these two realms it's so fascinating that you get that insight through her letters that she is so practically engaged with these matters but also has such strong relationships um, and seeks the assistance of and helps these border wardens and Henry VIII's kind of male political agents. I think that's what's so fascinating, if, if that makes sense. That's the yeah. kind of coolest part about her correspondence. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I would love to know what she thought. Like, obviously, she's she's doing the best in terms of politics and diplomacy. Yeah. But, you know, her brother just had her husband killed. Like, I just, I, you know, it's hard to get our head around that, isn't it? What was she feeling herself, I wonder? Of course, we're not going to know the answer to that. Um, and, and But she knows what she has to do, right? As a, as a queen, yeah. she knows what the next step is rather than give in to that grief. You must have gotten a little bit cranky at your brother after that. I just really enjoy that there's a massive elephant in the room and they casually yeah. just 
tiptoe around it. I think it's it's really interesting because, like you say, you know, your husband's killed by your brother's army, essentially. But obviously, Margaret was in such a position that she couldn't kind of rest on that and, and, and kind of present that persona to the English court and to Henry VIII because he was a really important ally for her, especially when she was a young queen. And because Henry VIII's army killed James IV, the Scottish lords really distrusted Margaret. So she was in a really difficult position during her time in Scotland. The noblemen and all of the Scottish people who were occupying her dower lands often didn't pay rent. So she was financially in very difficult situations. So she kind of really had to, she was forced to rely on Henry VIII and, and his assistance at different times. So I guess it's like you say, need over yeah. necessity of kind of everything else you know and I, I need your help so it, it really does kind of highlight how different familial relationships yes. can be in these kinds of situations in the past absolutely that's what I was just thinking myself so if we talk a little bit more about Margaret's actual letters yeah um, how did the recipient's social status actually affect the way in which Margaret formatted and structured her writing presumably she's been tutored from you know very young in order to know how to write these things so could you just dive into that a little bit more I'm pleased that you asked that question because I don't think any people don't often kind of think about the implications of social status um, can have on the composition of these kinds of letters. So it affects it in multiple ways. So uh, linguistically and materially. So what the language of the letter is and then what it looks like, how it's presented. So Margaret generally uses more deferential terminology when she's addressing. So like Henry VIII versus Thomas Dacre, for example. So with Henry VIII, you get really quite formal openings. So with scribal texts you can get openings that say things like right excellent my high and mighty prince our dearest brother so it's incredibly like formal and deferential whereas if she's writing to Thomas Dacre for example it will just say my lord Dacre linguistically their differences in, in status are reflected very clearly and if she asks for something she'll use different kinds of verbs so when writing to Henry VIII she'll generally use beseech when writing to people of a lower social status she'll use pray and how she signs off the letters will be different you know she'll be far more overtly deferential when writing to Henry versus Thomas Dacre if it's Thomas Dacre she'll just say your friend Margaret whereas if it's Henry you know it's your your humble uh, and loving sister Uh, differences in social status are very much reflected in in the material format of texts of this period so um, for example paper was such an expensive and, and highly valued commodity so by writing into someone of a superior social status and using lots of blank space on a page was a really overt way of showing that you respected them. So with Margaret, you find that she'll use large pieces of paper with Henry VIII and she'll often use blank space. Um, and sometimes she'll write landscape on a large page. So it's about A3 in size and she'll use maybe a quarter of the page um, or half the page in, in writing. And sometimes she'll leave some space beneath it, put her signature maybe halfway down the text to sh- the kind of blank space to show respect to Henry VIII. Whereas if she was writing to his Thomas Dacre, for example, she would write portrait on a page and she would maybe fold it in half to make it a booklet. So it's the same size page ultimately, but there's less kind of overt space being left um, to show respect. So yeah, kind of really fascinating linguistically and materially, these differences in social status of her recipients are reflected. But also in situations in which she's writing quickly or 
necessity of writing sometimes she'll flout these regulations and just send Henry Lee like a square of paper because she's she's in a rush so they're the general rules but it depends in circumstances and I think that just highlights how important it is wherever possible to see the original doesn't it because then you get that sense of are they in a rush no that's true and and that's one thing when I first went to the archives I was in the National Archives and I opened a volume and I was just struck by how big and imposing the paper was um, of one of her letters to Henry VIII. And this is one of the letters where she's trying to organise a diplomatic meeting between James V, her son, and Henry VIII in the 1530s. And you've got to really think that a messenger would have arrived at the English court and then would have physically opened this letter and it would have been ginormous. And it's sending a real message, you know, this is important and I'm doing something formal in my letter writing here. So yeah, and you will never get that kind of impression by looking at a digital copy or a microfilm so it's, yeah if you have the opportunity to go to the archive I find it so educational to think about these texts in so many different ways that you can't kind of you can't appreciate online yeah absolutely and even just the folds I think you know when you get to see the creases and and you think wow this was actually opened up or I don't know it's just amazing isn't it absolutely it's yeah it's my favorite part of of the analysis actually so fascinating the different kinds of seals that they use is also significant you know you use a big seal you're doing something important and formal but little seal means it's a bit more personal right it's so interesting yeah and in your thesis you address the following questions and by the way your thesis is available online which is the best news to anyone listening. So, um, and you address the questions, how did Margaret Tudor perform the role of diplomatic mediator through her correspondence? And you've touched on this obviously a little bit and why. So can you just maybe tell us a little bit more about your findings in this area? It's something that hasn't really been considered with Margaret's letter writing before. And so when I first started the project, I wasn't sure quite what I was going to focus on with my PhD. And I was really taken by how much Margaret referred to herself as mediating. She's just obsessed with it in all of her letter writing. And I thought, well, why is that? Um, And that became the real focus of my analysis. So basically, what I've been interested in is how Margaret mediates between England and Scotland and why. You know, why is she so interested? Why is it such a kind of prolific element of her correspondence? And kind of the conclusion I came to is the fact that after James IV died, Margaret can no longer perform the role of of royal mother and provide him with with more children. Um, So she had to kind of find a different sort of queenly role that she could perform. And one of the roles that medieval and early modern queens performed symbolically and practically was that of mediator between their subjects and the king but also across international boundaries and through her bloodlines with the English court Margaret is a natural born mediator Um, and that's a role that she really tried to perform practically through her correspondence after the death of James IV and I think she does this for kind of multiple reasons she does it number one because it it gives her more leverage in these situations and, and she can kind of have like her importance and value and if you can perform the role of diplomatic mediator on behalf of the Scottish court and the the new regent the Duke of Albany you're more likely to to receive their goodwill and maybe financial uh, favours and kind of secure her position a bit more and the same with uh, Henry VIII she'd write quite often but it was also a way of kind of ensuring that Henry VIII didn't forget her and that she was a useful kind of tool for him and, and because of that was more willing to support her financially so that's one of the 
kind of practical reasons why she does it for kind of her own benefit I guess and also because she was born to perform this role she would have been very much socialized and, and educated to understand that this was her born job and, and her function but also what's interesting through my analysis of her letters and, and my thesis is that it becomes quite clear that the Scottish lords and, and the English king actually also very much value her in this role so in 15 like late 1521 early 1522 Anglo-Scots relations were very much fraught should we say Henry VIII who was very much against Duke of Albany being the regent of Scotland and he kind of said that because he was present in Scotland his uh, nephew James V was in great danger because there was this, these rumours circulating that Margaret and the Duke of Albany were engaged in an illicit affair and that the Duke of Albany because he was also the next in line to the Scottish throne was planning to kill James V and take the throne for himself and marry Margaret all kinds of rumours circulated at the court there's no evidence to suggest this yeah. is true by the way but what's interesting is at this period because of this this strange relationship between England and Scotland the, the Scottish side call upon Margaret to write to Henry VIII to organize a renewal of Anglo-Scots peace and they see her as being like a really an integral aspect of these negotiations and maintaining this relationship so it's interesting how at different points in Margaret's life she's actively kind of encouraged by the different sides to perform the role of mediator because she's so important. And I think that's what's so interesting is not only Margaret performing this because she's born to and because it also brings her some kind of financial and political gains, but also it highlights that from her wider perspective and her male peers in this period and really important agents in in early modern Europe, she is valued in this role and she is kind of an, an inherent mechanism in politics and diplomacy of this time and she is actively encouraged to perform this role and I think that's what's so interesting it really reassesses Margaret as a political agent in this period because she's previously in studies that have looked at her just from her formal political role and her performing the role of regent she's regarded as being kind of inept and very yeah. unsuccessful in this role but if you think about how she performs the role of mediator through her correspondence it shows that she's actually far more savvy and important yeah. than we yeah. initially anticipate so yeah that's, that's kind of the main point of my thesis absolutely and and I suppose the fact that you say she's being encouraged also suggests that she's quite skillful at what she's doing as well yeah I think she yeah I think she is you know she knows who she's writing to and how to write to them yeah. you know she I, I would know she hasn't had the formal education that someone like Elizabeth I has had you know she hasn't had from what I can kind of gather the same kind of rhetorical training yeah. as, as Elizabeth I and potentially Henry VIII but she's definitely had a very practical education in the, the function of letter writing and political kind of her political role and how to negotiate with legal matters she's very she's a very practically intelligent woman and, and yeah that's what's so fascinating about yeah. her yeah and obviously she left court quite young, the English court, but obviously she had some great examples there with her of very strong and intelligent women in terms of her mother and her grandmother as well. So, you know, that's really nice to think of that too. No, absolutely. And I think she would have been further educated in Scotland as well after she'd arrived there. So, yeah, I mean, I just think Margaret Beaufort, I just think yeah. she must have had such an incredible influence. I mean, we have no evidence of, of their relationship or of the education that she must have received, but uh, I mean, 
given Margaret Beaufort activity and kind of relationship with Henry VII, I sort of like hope that she was practically involved. That was something, yes. Yeah. I I totally agree with you. And so tell us, you've already said that obviously late 1521, 1522 is a difficult time in terms of the, the relationship between the two nations. So tell us about this memorial that Margaret sent her brother in in January 1522 and maybe what is a memorial and how yeah. does it differ from a letter etc I, I guess I'm probably best to give a little bit of context so yep. as I said difficult you know very tumultuous relationship between England and Scotland at this time so when Margaret she decides to write to the English court in collaboration um, with the Scottish court to ask for a renewal of peace which was due to expire in I think it's February or March the next year initially she just sends a holograph letter to Henry VIII in December 1521 saying you know, please can we have peace due to issues of honour and, you know, maintaining my position and, and James V's position. And obviously, because these tie blood relationships, you know, let us continue peace. Why would we have war for that? But what's really interesting is this, this first letter, photograph, as I said, you know, Margaret's really gone to a lot of effort to pen this. And it would have taken a lot of time and energy. And this was generally kind of well received by late medieval and early modern recipients. And she's writing to her brother. So she's kind of gone to a lot of effort here. And he ignores her. He just does not reply. Yeah. And that's a massive kind of snob in this period. Not replying to A of letter is, is a bad letter writing faux pas. But not replying to your sister is a, it's a yeah. very kind of clear political message of the fact that, you know, he does not agree with her practices and her affiliation with the Scottish court and the fact she's trying to uh, renew this peace treaty. So what's interesting is the fact that Margaret doesn't just give up. She doesn't just send another letter. She kind of changed tack and she sends one of her personal messengers with, with a memorial and some letters of credence. So a memorial is basically, it's an unusual genre, it's basically a form of diplomatic instructions. And we don't know that much about them, actually. And I've kind of done a little bit of analysis on, on Margaret's memorials. But what they seem to be is almost like, a, um, they're, so they're unsealed um, and they don't look like a letter. You know, they don't have the formal openings and address. It says, here are some points I would like you right. to discuss with the monarch. And it's generally addressed to the messenger or the ambassador who's taken taken this text to the, the foreign host. And basically it forms like a, a list of points that a, a proxy or a messenger should discuss with a foreign host. It's, they don't seem to be read like verbatim, but it's kind of like a, a memo, you know, please, right. you know, discuss these things with, with my brother. It's Margaret doing that. Um, but they were also used as like a, a reference by the host so they would keep them and they could refer back to the points. But what's really interesting is the fact that Margaret's, Margaret writes this in her own hand. And for this kind of uh, genre of communication, they're generally written, they're generally scribal texts. I've not really seen many holograph texts, maybe one or two others, but Margaret has a few surviving in her archive. So it kind of really highlights the importance that this kind of text had and it was seen by the uh, foreign host. It wasn't just kind of a private copy for the messenger. And I think Margaret sends it because this kind of genre of communication is potentially a bit more engaging and interactive because her messenger is going, showing Henry VIII this document, and then it goes to kind of participate in a diplomatic negotiation. So her messenger could try and be more persuasive on her behalf, and her messenger could also kind of gauge how Henry VIII was responding to her request. It has a a greater kind of performative impact and kind of is more engaging than just sending um, a letter, which doesn't necessarily need a response. If you're sending your messenger who's there to engage in a negotiation that's a very different kind of experience and it's more likely to elicit some kind of response but what's really interesting is the fact that this is a formal 
diplomatic genre of writing and it's used in kind of formal summits and it's used by uh, leaders where they send formal ambassador ambassadorial parties so it's a very formal genre of communication but the fact that Margaret's choosing to send this shows that she's very kind of diplomatically aware of the different kind of genres and conventions of different kinds of texts that you use in these negotiations. And she's showing that by changing the genre of writing that she's using, she, she kind of is very aware of their different performative functions and their impact. And she's showing that she's very diplomatically savvy and resilient and quite tenacious in the fact that she decided to change and to kind of change her tack but also keep pursuing her requests so they were really fascinating and kind of unusual genre of communication but the fact that Margaret is writing in them shows that she's very as I said very she must be very educated in in what you do in these kinds of situations and very incredibly savvy Um, and there's not really many I've not found many um, of kind of uh, contemporary queens doing this kind of practice so she's perhaps slightly unusual in this way amazing and so when you were analyzing these and reading these who was the the Margaret Tudor that was sort of coming to life in front of you in terms of personality you said tenacious was there anything else that you you sort of felt that you could draw from the memorial yes I think very intelligent practical woman who's as I said tenacious and very focused in what she's doing and isn't doesn't kind of give up lightly you know she's I mean she's relates Henry VIII right she's she's the granddaughter of Margaret Beaufort you know she's got some character and I think that's what really came across is the fact that she's so persistent but also the the memorial I think really offered me a new understanding of Margaret and the fact that she's so aware of the different functions of correspondence she's very kind of skillful and and diplomatically aware and and I didn't kind of appreciate that beforehand and I don't think many other people have you know because normally Margaret's just moaning in her letters or kind of (laughs) continuously writing to Henry being like please can I have some cash or please can we you know make sure Angler's got relations continue and it just really highlights that she's she isn't just moaning she's very no. practical in how she's and skillful in how she's trying to carry out these negotiations but that's what I really kind of had newfound respect for her I thought yeah you, you know what you're doing girl yeah. she's very exacting in what she does absolutely it sounds exactly as you say very calculated and that she's someone extremely observant and a fast learner I don't know that that's yeah. the sort of sense that I'm getting from it and I'm so again I'm so glad that you're doing this work if we look more generally at queens in this period yeah. what do you think Margaret's letters tell us a little bit about letter writing practices or anything else really in terms of, of 16th century queens one thing it's really highlighted to me is how intrinsic like kind of Tudor early Tudor queens were and, and, and involved in, in politics and diplomacy of the period and how practically involved they were through letter writing and that's something you know we talk about um, if you look at like a scholarship on the field of the cloth of gold you know there's reference to queens being part of these formal diplomatic negotiations and they're obviously at the courts and they receive ambassadors so these royal women are actively involved in really important diplomatic issues but what we don't necessarily think about is how they are engaged in them kind of on a day-to-day basis through letter writing and that's what I found really revealing about Margaret is we can gain kind of very new insight um, and kind of greater respect and understanding of how these women are engaged in, in these such incredibly important issues and traditionally regarded masculine domains where actually Tudor queens are 
intrinsically part of them and they're respected and, and this is acknowledged by their male kind of contemporaries. So I think that's what's so interesting. That's something I'm going to be pursuing in a future project that starts in October where I'm looking at early Tudor Queen's correspondence. And I'm intrigued to see if Margaret is an exception or is kind of part of the mainstream and actually are other early Tudor Queens doing this and we just haven't kind of considered them in, in the same way. Um, you know, there's never been such a large study of early Tudor Queen's correspondence. And given that Margaret adapts her kind of communicative strategies in different situations, and we've seen with the memorial, and it shows that she's very educated and savvy and skillful. Well, actually, I wonder if that's kind of carried out by, well, it probably is carried out by her female contemporaries. So I'm intrigued. I think that's what it really gives us. It kind of gives them a newfound appreciation of their skill and their place in these negotiations. And I'm hoping that that will translate in the next project. That's so exciting. I, now I need to know more about that project. So please, I hope you'll come back one day and talk to us about, about that work as well. That would be absolutely amazing. This has been such a great conversation. I feel like Margaret's sort of stepped out of the shadows more. So thank you so much, Helen. But there's something we do at the end of episodes of yep. Talking Tudors, and that is what I call a little game of 10 to go. So just 10 questions to get to know you a little bit better. So number one, um, where's a place that you like to visit that's close to home, maybe an inspirational place for you or, or somewhere that you just like to go to? Uh, so I really like Hardwick Hall, which is in Derbyshire, and that was the ancestral home of Bess of Hardwick. And it's absolutely beautiful. If you ever get a chance to visit, it's architecturally fantastic and my external examiner for my PhD was is the expert on Bessa Pardo's letters um oh, so yes. it's just kind of like visiting there for the first time I was like wow Bess was here and yeah. kind of all the involvement with Mary Queen of Scots and kind of just walking through the room thinking about um, Bess writing these letters it's it's amazing it's just architecturally fantastic and Bess as, as, a, as an early modern woman is amazing so I absolutely would recommend a visit it's one of the best historic homes I've ever been to so many windows wow and Bess of Hardwick is so interesting isn't she another you know prolific letter writer and and just fascinating all-round fascinating woman so number two do you have a signature recipe probably lasagna make quite a good oh, lasagna good. Um, I'm gonna make sure you put wine in it and bacon that's the okay. way yeah my mother-in-law makes an incredible one so I sort of gave up even attempting to make a lasagna because hers was so good but I think I feel like I need to to give it a go yeah make sure you make a proper bechamel sauce as well okay. so cook in your um the onion the celery the, the carrot uh, the bay leaves and the peppercorns in the milk Yum. before you make the, the okay. sauce that's, that's a game changer people just make a white sauce and it's rubbish yes. all right bechamel all right. Bechamel, I like it. Okay, thank Bechamel you. is the way. Thank you so much. And what was the last film or maybe series on TV that you watched? Oh, so I'm just currently finishing off Grace and Frankie. It's one of my favorite TV series, and they've just it's the final few episodes. Um, so yeah, I think it's been going for like seven seasons now. And right, yeah, I really yeah. enjoy kind of strong female-centered American comedy. That's my yeah. genre, I think. Sounds good. Ironically, and, not historical at all. No, but so, I think sometimes you need that change, don't you? When you're just immersed in that most of the time. Sorry, I tried watching Wolf Hall, and at the first episode, I was shouting at the TV, so I figured I can't really watch Tudor historical drama. It's, it's too close to home. Yes, I think you definitely need to take off your Tudor historian hat for that one and just yeah. kind of sit back, because otherwise you can yeah. you can go a bit crazy watching those things. Um, and what about the last book that you read? I'm about to read, here we go, um, it's, it's by Bella Mackey and it's uh, How to Kill Your Family, so uh, yes. it sounds very dark, <laughs> it does. it's kind of sort of thriller, you know, 
crime kind of psychological thriller so I'm excited about that yeah that and clearly good. that's a little bit more like clearly easier to remember than the other book I just read it was yeah. a bit trash right I'm notoriously bad at remembering titles and authors so I'm done with you don't worry an ideal Saturday night for you what does that consist of very boring on Saturday nights. Friday nights are more likely to go out okay, for dinner or yeah, so Friday nights, maybe go out for dinner or get a takeaway, a glass of wine, you know, just really chill out. Saturday nights are more likely to be on pajamas at eight pm because <laughs> I do not party hard. That's I'm okay. old and boring. Watching watching some kind of sci-fi on Netflix, you know. I like that's it. My way. You definitely do not look old, Helen, so I'm not taking that as an excuse, sorry. Um, What about a favourite colour? Favourite colour? navy blue I like it nice and classic very classy and what about when you were a child what what did you want to be when you were older oh I think uh, I think I was, I was never really very sure but I think at one point I wanted to be a vet, a vet yes. which I mean that's, that's kind of turned out a little bit different <laughs> slightly slightly different All that much. that's I okay I should be a vet well I wanted to be an air traffic controller so I don't know. I'm not sure what happened there That's until I realized that. It, yeah, I realized that it was incredibly stressful and that you had to be extremely good at maths. And I think that was the, yeah. the kind of end for me. I was like, oh, well, I like airplanes. I like travel. I don't know what I thought. Very strange. Um, what about a mystery that you would love to solve or, or to at least, even if you don't solve it yourself, know the, the answer to? Can it be Margaret related? It could be whatever you like, historical or contemporary. Or... Well, it's, it's obviously related to Margaret because I'm slightly obsessed with her. Yeah. Um, so, what's, so Margaret is really interesting linguistically because she acquires features of Scots in her writing. And I would like to know, A, how much she acquired because yeah. elements of the Scots um, in some of her letters are suggested that she's copied a scribal draft and she's kind of transmitting their Scots features right. into her own writing. But the rest of her correspondence does suggest that she's acquired some kinds of terminology and, and, and syntactic structures and some of the pronunciation. So I'd really like to know what she sounded like and actually what her what her language, linguistically what she was like as a human in, in real life. I would love to kind of you just be able to have a conversation with her and be like, what do you yeah. sound like? Yeah, oh this is very gosh. nerdy. Yeah. No, I'm, I totally agree with you. I, I would love to know what Anne Boleyn sounded like too, because obviously she's yeah. a similar story. She was in, went to Europe at around 12, I think. So yeah. is she speaking she with was... a French accent? Is she not speaking with a French, you know, that whole thing debate as well. I kind of feel like she may have had a slight lilt when she returned, but it's it's hard to know, isn't it? Yeah, I imagine so, like you say, because it's quite a sociolinguistically sort of 12-year-old. Yeah, very, you pick it up, don't you? Yeah. yeah if you went today, like hard. if you moved today and you're only about 12 or... I feel and like at that would. age, you're very impressionable. Oh. Um, so, yeah, you'd think that she would have acquired at least something. I mean, yeah. It's interesting. I didn't think about that. Yeah, hmm. Great mystery. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. And lucky last question. What is something that you're looking forward to this year? Okay, getting into the archives. <laughs> my new, Good. My new project, yeah. And also going on holiday abroad yeah. again. Good. Where, where are you off to? I'm off to uh, hopefully Vienna. So I've never good. been to Austria. So that sounds so good. And I actually told a fib. That's not the last question. I have one more thing for you, and that's the yeah. Tudor takeaway. So I asked my guests, all my guests, for a Tudor takeaway. So something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show. So yeah. do you have a suggestion for us? Yeah, I do actually. Um, it's kind of in line with what you'd expect with me. Um, so Andrea Clark, who's a curator at the British Library, some time ago uh, published a book called Tudor Monarchs Lives in 
letters and it's full of letters from related to the Tudor monarchs and it charts really important historical events so you know Henry VIII deciding that there's no longer going to be a Catholic um, so really important things like this and kind of royal marriage treaties and his relationships with Anne Boleyn etc are all mapped in correspondence of the period there's stuff from Margaret Beaufort stuff from Margaret and it's just such a fascinating and very accessible and engaging volume full of pictures and it just gives you a real insight into Tudor textual practices and kind of new aspects of really iconic events but from kind of their, their textual kind of basis so it's great really cool book I love it and it's great for teaching and just for a general little flip through. So absolutely. absolutely. That sounds great. I always get scared, you know, when people tell me new books because I'm like, I just said I would not buy any more books this week. And now I'm thinking, well, look, I've got to have that one because I love letters and I buy all those collected works of, you know, the correspondence of different letters. So I'll be definitely getting your book, of course. But now <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, well, one more book won't hurt. I can just order yeah, that. That's fine. And it's got it's got good pictures in it. You'll, you'll enjoy it. It's- Helen, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk Tudors with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been an absolute joy. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music